Presented by T-Mobile, the official wireless partner of Odyssey Sports. With an awesome network and great savings, there's never been a better time to join T-Mobile. Visit your neighborhood store to make the switch today. Passion, drive, and patience. What brings home the winning trophy is also what keeps your ride or die alive. eBay Motors has everything you need to maintain your vehicle and level it up to peak performance. From superchargers, roof racks, exhaust kits, LED headlights, and more. Whether you're into speed, power, or style, eBay Motors has got you covered. With over 122 million parts for your number one ride or die, you'll always find exactly what you're looking for. And with eBay Guaranteed Fit, your part is guaranteed to fit your ride every time or your money back. Because with eBay Motors, you're burning rubber, not cash. With all the parts you need at the prices you want, it's easy to turn your car into the MVP and bring home that win. Keep your ride or die alive at ebaymotors.com. Eligible items only. Exclusions apply. It's the amazing Rico Bronia podcast with your host, Evan Roberts. And just like that, we are back to sucking. Welcome back. We had a little interlude where we felt we were good. A little interlude where we had some great wins at City Field. But two days in Chicago. And it's back to basically the majority of this season. Welcome to Rico Bronia. I'm glad we're doing this pod after losing the first two games to the Cubs. I mentioned last time on the Rico we were going to record uh, this special day because I am unable to record at the end of this Cubs series. But even if I was able to record at the end of the Cubs series, I think it's a good time to start talking about this team again because these have been two brutal losses that are really the microcosm of all their struggles prior to the great comeback against Tampa Bay. A lack of big hits, an offense that's mostly limp, and starting pitching that is very, very tough to watch. Tyler McGill was a disaster in game one. Kodai Sengel wasn't a disaster in game two by any stretch, because at the end of the day, I always say this, you're judged by how many runs did you give up, how many innings did you pitch. Everything else doesn't really matter. But he put a country on base over the course of five innings and was very fortunate and also really good where he would be able to make the big pitch when he needed to to get through five innings, allow three runs. And the story was the Met offense did nothing. But let me start with the first game of this series. Let's break down these two games. There's a lot of emails to read because there's a lot of frustrated Met fans. This series begins with Buck Showalter right before a pitch is even thrown, pissing us all off. Because the lineup we got on Tuesday night on the heels of a five-game winning streak with the way Francisco Alvarez is playing, with really all the good feelings that we had, got eliminated right away because there were two issues with the lineup on Tuesday night. And I'll start with my biggest issue. My biggest issue was no Jeff McNeil. That was my biggest issue. I tried to talk myself down off of it by saying, look, he's trying to give him an off day. Jeff McNeil has played every game they have played this season. Even if he hasn't started every game, he's gotten into every single game. Maybe Buck is just trying to keep his guys fresh. But then Jeff McNeil entered the game in the seventh inning anyway. So throw that one away. So he takes McNeil, who was nine for his last 21 and was hitting on the homestand, and he sits his ass down essentially for Tommy Pham, not for Eduardo Escobar, because I have no problem with Escobar playing. Eduardo Escobar had great career numbers 
against Drew Smiley. He was eight for 14 with four home runs. And look, you could disagree with me. Shoot the messenger if you want. I'm okay with that. When a guy has such great career numbers against another pitcher, and it's not that small of a sample size, he isn't three for five, he's eight for 14, I got no problem playing him. So my issue wasn't Escobar playing. My issue was Tommy Pham is playing. Why the hell does Tommy Pham have to play over Jeff McNeil? Issue number two, I'm sure this is the one Pete has, which is how does Francisco Alvarez not play? My only rationalization, and I was proven right when Buck admitted it, was his plan was to play Alvarez in game two and game three. And I've said this on the Rico, as long as Alvarez is playing two out of every three games, I'm good. So I would be a hypocrite to then scream and yell about that move if I'm good with Alvarez playing two out of every three games, which he's going to do, which he has consistently done. The problem was Gary Sanchez played like the the end-of-the-line Yankees Gary Sanchez. He did crap at the plate. He committed a pass ball. There were two other wild pitches he needed to block. And, oh, let's not forget a foul pop-up that the guy couldn't catch. So it took Yankee fans, for some Yankee fans years, for some Yankee fans months, to turn on Gary Sanchez. It took us one day. We're done with him. Well, let's be perfectly honest. We're, we're freaking done with him. I can't live, and I'm being serious here, as bad as Tomas Nito is offensively, I can't live with that kind of defense behind the plate unless you're giving me Piazza offense. No, unless you're giving me a lot of offense, I don't want that. And, and to be honest with you, As a backup catcher for Francisco Alvarez, I'd rather have a defensive first catcher. I don't need another bat. Alvarez is my bat. So it's taken two starts. It's taken five minutes. It took one pass ball. It took two wild pitches. It took one foul drop pop-up. Done with Gary Sanchez. Now back to Tommy Pham. So Buck Showalter decides to start Tommy Pham over Jeff McNeil. He strikes out twice in his first two at-bats. And oh, by the way, in the fourth inning, with the game still reasonably close, he drops a fly ball in left field. Buck Showalter's decisions, the two decisions on this lineup, A, to not play McNeil and play Tommy Pham over him, and then B, to play Sanchez over Alvarez, absolutely effed them completely. You got nothing out of Gary Sanchez, nothing. He made defensive miscues, and Tommy Pham can't catch a fly ball in left field. But that wasn't the only issue. That was not the only issue. I give a little bit of crap to Francisco Lindor. I got to give him some crap because go back to the second inning. Saya Suzuki, it's the leadoff home run. Okay, Mets are down one nothing. Tyler McGill issues a walk to Christopher Morrell. There's a runner on first and nobody out. Gets a ground out of Talkman, the pass ball, and a big strike out of Patrick Wisdom. So it's one nothing Chicago. There is a runner on third and two outs. Tyler McGill has an absolute avenue to getting out of the second inning. And Pete Hoffman's best friend, Jan Gomes, hits a uh, ground ball to shortstop. That is not the easiest play in the world, but Francisco Lindor cannot make the play. I'm trying to remember because it's been a little over 24 hours. I think it was a bad throw that he made or he didn't come up with a clean. I can't remember specifically the miscue that Lindor made, but the bottom line was he didn't throw Jan Gomes out. And Jan Gomes is safe at first base. 
a run scores, it's 2-0. And the next batter, Matt Mervis, hits a Wrigley Field two-run home run. Good night. If Lindor makes that play, it's 1-0, top of the third, we all move on. And this is a Met defense that's been considerably better this year. No question about it. It was not in the opener of this series. It was not. Between Tommy Pham dropping fly balls and Gary Sanchez committing pass balls, and while Lindor wasn't charged with an error, I understand, it was a play I expect him to make. It's a play we all expect him to make. Beatty made an error late in this game. Not that it mattered. Game was out of reach. Uh, But it was a very ugly defensive game. And, And that was a killer. That second inning was an absolute killer. You make the play defensively if you're Lindor. It's one nothing. Now, that's not an excuse for Tyler McGill. Tyler McGill still gives up a two-run home run to Matt Mervis, the ninth place hitter. He doesn't have to. So I'm not exonerating McGill, who was not great in this game. But you cannot hand out extra outs. And the Mets did this a lot in game one of this series. But let's get to the offense. Because quite frankly, the offense over the first two games, the tone was set in the top of the first inning of game one. You get a leadoff double from Brandon Nimmo. Ground rule double into the corner. You have a runner on second, nobody out. The Mets have a chance to do something. They just don't do all year long. Score in the first inning. It's something they did so well last year. They haven't done it this year. You're facing a tough lefty and Drew Smiley, who's had a great year. You got a runner on second and nobody out. And Eduardo Escobar, who, again, I have no problem with him playing. Do I love him batting second? No, I don't love that. I mean, as great as the numbers are, And again, I I love the fact he's in the lineup. I'm good with him being in the lineup. I'm good with Escobar being in the lineup sometimes against left-handed pitching if you use him correctly. To bat him second? I don't know, man. I don't know if I do that. And what does Eduardo Escobar do? He can't even move Brandon Nimmo over. He grounds out to third. Lindor can't come through with a clutch hit. Alondro draws a walk, and Viento strikes out. They waste right off the top. A runner on second, nobody out. And let's face it, that's been the entire series so far. The entire series has been that kind of showing. Let's put a couple of guys on base and do nothing with it. They get the home run by Pete Alonso, great. But then in the sixth inning of this game, in which they're sort of crawling back into it, because remember, it's 6-1 to at this point after Tyler McGill got chased in the fourth inning. They're set up with the bases loaded and nobody out with four, five, six coming up. I'm starting to think, wow, they're going to do it again. This is going to be a hell of a comeback. They have Drew Smiley out of this game. You're facing the Chicago Cub bullpen. You got bases loaded, nobody out, and they score one run on a ground ball fielder's choice off the bat of Alonzo. But let's get to the play and the moment and the decision That really pisses me off. Bases loaded, one out. I'm sorry, now run scores, so I guess it's first and third and one out. Whatever the situation was, I think it was first and and second one out after the Alonzo ground out, if we're being fair. First and second, one out, down by four, so you need one more base runner. But even if you don't get the tying run to the plate, you get a couple of those runs home, and now all of a sudden, a 6-2 game is 6-3, and it's 6-4, and it's 6-5. It's still early enough. It's only the sixth inning. You're in this baseball game, especially against the Cub bullpen. You have Mark Vientos coming up to the plate. Vientos looked bad against Drew Smiley in his first two at-bats. He's not facing Drew Smiley here because they've gone to a right-hander in Estrada. 
Okay, so here's our debate. Let's set this all up. Two on, one out, Vientos. Here are your options. Option number one, let Vientos hit. Okay, that's certainly on the table. Mark Vientos performed so well at AAA in which he hit righties, he hit lefties, he hit everybody, that I don't necessarily think you have to be afraid of the righty-righty matchup and pinch hit for him. So option number one, let Vientos hit with two on, one out. Option number two, Jeff McNeil. Option number three, Daniel Vogelback. You're not using Canna. You're not using Alvarez. So it's really those three options, right? McNeil, Vogelback, let Vientos hit. Now, I will give you my answer. We'll get Pete's answer, and then we'll find out what the brilliant manager decided to do, as you as you remember. I personally would have pinch hit for Vientos, as controversial as that may sound. I'm trying to win the game. I got a guy who won the National League batting title on my bench. And while from a versatility standpoint, it complicates things because I'm entering McNeil into the DH spot and I take full account that if if McNeil plays the field after this, I'm losing the DH. I understand that. I'm trying to get back in the game. I'm down six to two. Okay, it's not a two-two game. I'm not up by a run. I'm down by four runs. I need a big hit in this spot. If I don't get it, I'm not going to win the game. So I raise my hand to say, I send up Jeff McNeil. Consequences defensively be damned. Pete, those are your three options. There's no other option, obviously. Vientos hits, Jeff McNeil, or Daniel Vogelback. What do you do? I'm going to go with you as far as McNeil would uh, get the nod because of just the fact that I'm looking for a hit. I know he's the guy that's going to make contact and and will get most likely get on base because of contact, which will then lead to more runs. Now, however, if I had to choose between Vientos or Vogelback, I'm going to go Vientos all day. 100%. Daniel Vogelback has not done enough yet this season, and this is where I've turned on him, and I've been honest about this. I Based on performance in 2023, I've got no reason to want Daniel Vogel back up in that spot. He's only hit two home runs. The best positive he has is drawing a walk. While a walk is fine, because it does bring the tying run up to the plate, I got to drive some runs in. Like, it's not the ninth inning. It's the sixth inning. Go rip a double up the alley. And Vogel back hit the ball well. That's who Buck sent up, by the way. I think we all know the answer to this. And Vogelback hits the ball well, but it's a sacrifice fly. Big freaking deal. And I I have a major issue with it. And again, I, I fully understand the complications of McNeil, your most versatile player, being used as a pinch hitter for the DH where you lose your ability to use him as a guy who can play anywhere in the field. I'll deal with that if I have to. You know what I mean? Like, He stays in at DH. I don't have to make any other move. I haven't pinch hit for anybody yet. And if I pinch hit for Eduardo Escobar later, let me see where I'm at. Let me see if I need to pinch hit for Eduardo Escobar. Maybe I don't. Maybe he's my best option at that point. I'm deciding to use my best option off the bench in the sixth inning because I got guys on base. That's my decision. And and it's the right decision. Because the seventh inning, and that's when they ended up pinch hitting Escobar with Jeff McNeil, Yes, there's two men on base, but it's in an, it's an inning later. Like, I got to take my shot right now in this moment. And McNeil struck out in that spot. I, I admit that. <laughs> it was with two outs as opposed with one out. 
and he was facing a different pitcher. So who knows what the outcome was, but I did not like the decision of pinch hit for Mark Vientos with Daniel Vogelback. And he doesn't come through. And then Starling Marte came up in a very big spot. He's cooled off since that big home run on Sunday. And he weakly grounds out. And then again in the seventh inning, they have an opportunity. And that's the aforementioned situation in the seventh where Jeff McNeil strikes out on a 3-2 pitch that I think was out of the strike zone, would have been ball four. And after that, you could put the lights out. Mets lose to the Cubs where they score two freaking runs. And they go 0 for 7 with runners in scoring position. So we could kill McGill. McGill wasn't very good. He got knocked out in the fourth inning. And again, the Mets are forced to have to go to the bullpen early with Dominic Leone and Steven Nagosik and Jeff Brigham. That, that was a terrible performance by Tyler McGill. Even after the defensive miscue that led to the Mervis home run, McGill's got a chance to fight through the fourth and fifth inning. And he wasn't able to do it after the Tommy Famary had back-to-back strikeouts, but then he gave up a big hit to Matt Mervis. Then he gave up another base hit. Then he gave up a base hit to Dansby Swanson, who's a pain in the ass. So Miguel had opportunities in the second and fourth to get through it and not have this outing be as disastrous as it was, and he failed. And it goes back to an issue we've seen a lot this season. You get three and two-thirds innings from your starting pitching, it's a recipe for disaster. Look, credit to the Met bullpen. Leon, Gosick, and Brigham were actually not that bad. I mean, they only gave up one run after that, the Morell home run. So if the Mets get a couple of big hits, you may look back at the bullpen performance and say, hey, they kept them in the game. So the Mets lose game one for two reasons. The lack of clutch hitting, doesn't that sound familiar, and a terrible performance by their starting pitching. And that's how the tone is set in the opener of this series. And the tone was set with a lineup that was not ideal. It was set with horrible defense. It was set with not getting Nimmo home in the top of the first inning. And they had a really good promising first inning because even when they don't score, they had long at-bats and they made Drew Smiley throw 25 pitches. Big whoop. It did nothing. And they lose 7-2. to Now let's get to the game that we're recording right after. Game two of this series Kodai Senga, Marcus Stroman. First of all, Kodai Senga is only pitching because the Mets, and this is not on Senga. I want to make this very clear. This is a Met issue. The Mets are deathly afraid of Kodai Senga, not only pitching on regular rest, but even with five days rest. So they make the decision probably a while ago, but they announce it to us a couple of hours before game one that they're flip-flopping McGill and Senga. And as I've said before, you can run, but you can't high. While Senga won't pitch again on this road trip, which is a good thing because he sucks on the road, when he comes back to City, again, there's going to be a situation where he's going to have to pitch on four days rest unless the Mets call somebody up because he's now scheduled to pitch Tuesday of next week at City Field against the Phillies and then would have to come back and pitch Sunday at City Field against the Toronto Blue Jays. Will they find a way to delay that? Maybe. It's it's certainly possible. But in terms of how Kodai pitched against Chicago, there's a part of me that's very, very impressed by Senga, even in a performance as shaky as this one. And what I mean by that is he walks five guys in five innings. Nobody's happy with that. He gave up six hits to go along with that. He committed a balk. There were tons of base runners. And yet he was mostly, mostly because he did, 
kind of give up some big hits in the third inning, specifically the double to Saya Suzuki and the RBI single to Mike Talkman. But he was able to make the big pitch more times than not that got him out of these brutal situations. The best example of that being in the fourth inning in which he walks the eight and nine hitter back to back to start the inning and commits a balk. So you're facing the top of the order, including one of the toughest guys in the league to strike out this side of Luis Arise with second and third, nobody out. And he got out of it. And I give him credit for that. And what he was able to do, which Tyler McGill was not able to do, is he kept them in the game. He did. Now, I'm not, I'm not trying to throw bouquets at this guy because five innings, three runs is not good. I want to make that clear. It's not good enough. But I am impressed by his ability, and we've seen this from day one in spring training, of his ability to make that big pitch and at least not let go of the rope. And I think the other thing that hurts Senga, and this is going to sound like an excuse, but this is an observation. The fact that the Met offense could not muster any kind of long inning against Marcus Stroman cannot help. You've got a guy throwing a million pitches, which is Senga's fault, by the way. I'll make that clear. Like, going 3-2 on everybody, that's a Kodai Senga issue. And his command has not been impressive over his first eight major league starts. Now it's nine major league starts, okay? He's got to cut down on the walks. He cannot go 3-2 to every single hitter. So this is a Senga issue. But he's throwing basically 25 pitches an inning, and then the Met offense goes out there, and Marcus Stroman has a five-pitch inning. And that cannot help. And here's where it really jumped out at me. So he gets through the second inning, Senga. He puts the first two guys on base, walks Suzuki, gave up a hit to Talkman, and he gets out of it. And he was pretty fortunate because the Matt Mervis line drive was a rocket shot. May have been the hardest at Paul of the game, but it was right at Starling Marte, and he fights through the second inning. Old man winter here. If I had it my way, it would stay winter all year long. Short days, wind chill, black ice, and a good polar vortex. Oh, <laughs> heaven. Wait, is it getting warm in here? Your cold snap is over, old man winter. Spring has arrived. Spring. Spring is here, which means it's the perfect time to get away in the Hyundai you've always wanted. Visit the Hyundai Getaway Sales Event, where you can get great deals on all of our award-winning Hyundai models, like the tech-filled Tucson and Kona, as well as the spacious Palisade. Enjoy wherever you go with the peace of mind that comes with America's best warranty and three years or 36,000 miles of complimentary maintenance. But hurry in. These deals won't last. Add more joy to your journey at the Hyundai Getaway Sales Event. Now get 0% APR or up to 1500 bonus cash on the Hyundai Tucson. Now, during the Hyundai Getaway Sales Event. Offers end soon. Call 562-314-4603 for details. Yo, Trey. Kevin, what's up, man? You know, I've been thinking, what would have happened if the NBA never vetoes the Chris Paul trade to the Lakers and we get CP3 in the same backcourt as Kobe in L.A.? Well, you get a very happy Jack Nicholson, for sure. And the Lakers probably win a bunch more championships. CP3 finally gets a ring or two or three. And the Kardashian empire is forever altered. What did you just say? Hey, everybody, I'm Trey Wingo. And I'm Kevin Frazier, and we're teaming up on a new weekly sports podcast from Wondery Alternate Routes. As former sports center 
rankers and current sports obsessives, we're consumed by all the what-if questions that make being a sports fan so excruciatingly fun. If you're like us, then you also live and die on the fallout from every drop pass. Or play call. Each week on Alternate Routes, we'll take a flashpoint in sports, break down what actually happened, then explore every alternate scenario and the ripple effects it would have caused. Follow Alternate Routes on the Wondery app or wherever you get your podcasts. You can listen early and ad-free right now by joining Wondery Plus. Strowman in the third, I'm not even kidding, must have thrown, I'm sorry, in the second inning, Strowman must have thrown five pitches. So he comes out and barely breaks a sweat in the second inning. And that can that cannot help. It cannot help that Kodai Senga is throwing 30 pitches an inning, and then Marcus Strowman responds by, here's a five-pitch inning. And it happened a lot in this game, a lot, where... You know, I'm just sitting at home watching it. And I was behind a little bit where I was skipping commercials. So you really just see the baseball. Dude, it's like Seng is out there for 85% of the time. And then here's Stroman. Bing, bing, bing. See you later. Bing, bing, bing. Okay, we're fine. But look, this isn't good enough. I think we all admit that. This performance by Seng is not good enough. And I'm starting to think, because we're gaining a sample size, that for whatever reason, and I can't explain the reason. I'm just going to give you what I'm noticing. The guy just sucks on the road. He's a different pitcher at City Field as compared to road stadiums. Why? I don't know. I can't offer like the reason. All I know is 7 ERA versus like 1-5 ERA is pretty noticeable. But the problem is the offense. Because outside of our guy Francisco Alvarez breaking the wind in the third inning with that two-run home run, what did this offense do? They went one, two, three in the first, one, two, three in the second. They got a little infield hit from Alonzo in the fourth. And then unfortunately, the double play where Pete's trying to steal a steal a base has no idea what's going on. He slides, and you could see that in the camera when he slides in a second. I'm worried. Because now he gets up and has no idea where he is, and it turns into a double play. Then in the sixth, they get a leadoff hit from Francisco Alvarez. Double play. In the seventh, a one, two, three inning. Marcus Stroman threw 69 pitches, nice, in only seven innings. This offense did nothing, nothing in this game outside of the Alvarez home run. In fact, how many times did the baseball leave the infield against Marcus Stroman? The canna hit the Alvarez home run because the other hits they got in this game, and they only had two others, were infield hits. So they did nothing offensively. And then they had their moment of truth in the eighth inning. And look, it's tough to kill Alvarez because Alvarez hit the home run and Alvarez had the infield hit. He came up two for two. But obviously, when he steps up in the eighth against Stroman with first and third, one out down by two, we're all thinking the same thing, which is just don't ground into a double play. Like if you can get a sacrifice fly, even though the Mets are still down by a run, you feel like, okay, chipped away, top of the order coming up in the ninth. But the double play was the ultimate kick in the balls. And again, what do we, we're not going to kill Alvarez. Alvarez has been great. Uh, he was great in this game, whether it was defensively and obviously supplied the only offense with the two-run home run. But first and third, one out in the eighth. I think we all know when Alvarez hits that right at Swanson, this game is over. It's an easy double play, and you could turn the lights out, and they did nothing in the ninth inning, which was pretty disappointing that this offense with the top of the order coming up against Mark Leiter, despite 
how much of a buzzkill it was for Alvarez to ground into the double play. You still got a shot. You're down by two runs. You're not exactly facing uh, Trevor Hoffman in his prime. And the Met offense went down one, two, three. And here we are. Here we are. Two runs and two runs. Four runs in two games. They've had basically no big hits. They're 0 for 9 with runners in scoring position in this series. They've done nothing offensively outside of an Alvarez home run and Alonzo home run. And oh, by the way, their starting pitching's been mediocre. And the five-game winning streak's turned into a two-game losing streak. How do we feel? You feeling good, Pete? No, I feel terrible. And actually, I'm going to take that back before what I said about McNeil batting. Let Vientos bat in that spot. You want to know why? Because Alvarez has been the one guy who's actually hit big home runs in big spots. And that's because every time earlier in the season when he's cut, when he came up, it was always felt like he was in a big spot. So you got to learn. So now I'm thinking like, you know what? Vientos should have just stayed in the game. Let him pick, let him hit. And he'll learn for the next time because ultimately these guys are going to be in the, these big spots. Listen, like you said, it didn't, didn't come through today with Alvarez with the double play, but he did the damage early in the game. Yeah. I, I would normally agree with you if I don't have Jeff McNeil on my bench. I think what changes things is that I had such a good option on my bench, but on most nights, I think we would all prefer Vientos just DHs. And so in a normal world, your bench would be Gary Sanchez, Tommy Pham, Eduardo Escobar, and Daniel Vogelback. And if that's your bench, I completely agree with you. If that's my bench with an ideal starting lineup, then yes, you let Vientos hit. So the only reason I disagree is because you had that rare exception of McNeil being available. But you're right about Alvarez, and I'm very encouraged by what's gone on over the last two days with the reporting on him. What I mean by that is Will Salmon, I think is his name from The Athletic, wrote this great piece about Alvarez that was very complimentary from coaching staff guys. Jeremy Barnes, the hitting coach, said he's got the greatest growth mindset he's ever seen, which is a very big compliment. Uh, It's almost like things are leaking out to show you how happy everybody is with Francisco Alvarez. And that doesn't sound like an organization that has any interest in not only sending him down, but taking at-bats away from him and taking starts away from him. I think he's going to be the everyday catcher for this team, even when Narvaez and Nito are healthy. How they handle the roster, we'll discuss it in a second. But I think he's going to play most of the time. While while two out of three games may not be enough for a lot of people listening, and I get that, it's still the majority of the time. It's still 67% of the time, okay? And And I do think it's possible, though we haven't seen it yet, that Alvarez could work his way into more DH opportunities if they decide to carry three catchers once they start to get healthy. But I agree that Alvarez's growth has occurred from playing, from being out there. But a lot of that is that they didn't really have a choice. Tomas Nito made the choice for them. He was so bad offensively that they had to go out and play Francisco Alvarez. The Vientos thing, we're not there yet. And it's frustrating. I'm with you. Like, why is he not in the lineup on Wednesday night against Marcus Stroman? Why is he not? Mark Vientos was hitting right-handed pitching at AAA. And more than that, Daniel Vogelback has failed. Like, none of us want to hear anymore from Buck. Well, Vogel's a good option, too. He's not a good option, too. Like, I've sat here arguing and defending him. And the reason I defended him is because I had the data to back me up. I did. That data doesn't exist anymore. 
I'm not going to defend them. I don't have a freaking agenda. I just try to call it like it is and be fair. Well, if we're all being fair, Daniel Vogelback has failed. He hasn't done enough. And while I may not be on the DFA train, I am on the train that he cannot be the everyday designated hitter. You have to give Vientos a few weeks, probably more than that, to either sink or swim. And it's difficult to do that when you're not giving him every day at-bats. But that lineup going into Tuesday, and this is going to be a battle every game now. Buck's going to be under fire for these lineups, and we're going to demand the young guys to play. And what makes the, the Mets look so stupid is the young guys are actually supplying any semblance of offense we see sometimes, like we saw on Wednesday when Alvarez hits the two-run home run. <sighs> and there's another thing too, bro. I, I know that you're you're protecting him a little bit. I'm not, I'm not saying you're protecting him. Who am I him. protecting? Kodai Senga. That guy, I'm sorry, he's had three good starts so far. Three. That's it. Rack him up. Three good starts. Uh, that is not good enough. We've talked about how many how many ba- how many ba- uh, base runners he allows between walks and between hits, and you could say that he battles and he's you know he finds a way to get through th- through innings. That is not good enough with everybody else on this team only getting you to five innings. I mean, it just it just it's 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 not good anymore. Because it's not. And you have Drew Smith coming in the sixth inning, uh, you know, blowing the game open. It's not good enough. I agree with you on that. I'm treating Senga very much like a young player. And I know he's making a lot of money, so that's difficult for a lot of people to do. But as somebody that's new to the major leagues and a real unknown to all of us, I'm being very open-minded as I learn about him. And I think that there is an adjustment to pitching in Major League Baseball. So I can't just expect him to dominate right away. Now, again, that doesn't mean I'm happy with five innings, three runs, but I'm being honest that I'm encouraged by his ability to get the big out when he needs to. That's that's all I'm saying. Uh, and and the, the talk about the amount of pitches he threw tonight or on Wednesday and how quickly he had to come back out is not a defense of him. It's an observation. It just... It did not help him that the Met offense did so little. It, it reminds me in the NFL where you've got a defense that's not playing great. They're battling. They're, they're on the field for a while, but they're holding the opposing offense to a field goal, right? And so they're doing an okay job. And then the offense comes on the field, Zach Wilson, and there's a three and out. And now the exhausted defense has to go back on the field. It's not like the defense is playing their asses off, but it doesn't help the defense that after a 10-play drive that took seven minutes when they finally got off the field and held the opponent to three, they got to go back on the field 30 seconds later. Doesn't help. That, that, that I get, okay, but it's not like the New York Jets were like, hey, do you mind, can we start this game rather than Sunday and push it to like Wednesday? Can, can we can we push it okay, back so we can give Zach Willis some more reps? But here's the thing about that, and, and this is a broader debate that I've had with people concerning baseball and basketball. Okay, I don't understand how with maintenance days in the NBA we attack the players, but when there's maintenance days in baseball, we attack the manager. When really it's organizations in basketball and baseball who make those decisions. Kodai Senga has nothing to do with him getting extra days. Gary Cohen said it on the broadcast the other day. Senga wants to pitch on four days rest. He's ready to go. It's kind of like when um, 
Kevin Durant, I'll use him as an example, even though I can't stand him anymore. When he doesn't play in a game for a maintenance day, you think he doesn't want to play? No, it's the organization saying, hey, we're going to sit him. Jeff McNeil the other day did not play because McNeil said he needed an off day. The organization said it. That's what's happening with Kodai Singh. He has nothing to do with this extra day BS the organization's pulling. That's on Billy Epler and Buck Showalter. So can I ask you a question? Because I honestly, I, I want to know. I, I don't think you know, but I'm curious. Is it because they're worried about his performance on short rest or, or are they worried about injury on short rest? No, I think it's probably performance because, look, when you come to the United States after pitching in Japan, there's a lot of adjustments you have to make. Obviously, the lineups, the stadiums you're playing in, the baseball is different, the language barrier, which should not be understated. Imagine being dropped in the middle of Japan and having to do your job and you only know English. Like, there's a factor here, and I, I admit that. And I think one of the other factors is that in Japan, you don't pitch on four days rest. So I think it's simply them being really, really cautious. And I would say it's similar to how cautious they are with prospects. The Mets under Billy Epler have been super cautious with prospects. We've screamed about it a lot here on Rico Bronia. I think it's similar that they're being very, very, very careful. So I don't think it's injury related. I think it's more, will he be effective? There has to be a day though where he does it, where he pitches on four days rest. And I think it's going to happen on the next homestand, but eventually it, it has to occur because can I ask you a dumb question? If the They're Mets no are fortunate question. enough to be a postseason team and they are playing in the divisional series or the National League Championship Series, are you going to be able to pitch Kodai Senga on four days rest? Or are you going to have to manipulate the rotation in the postseason so that Senga needs a fifth or sixth day? Like, you can't, you can't do that. You're not always given the ability to do that come October. So you got to find out now in May and June, while it sucks to lose these games and it sucks to have Senga nurse his way through five innings, poop and get off the pot. Like, eventually, you just got to sit down and squeeze. You know, Pete? Well, maybe they'll plan on having him start game one and game seven. <laughs> that's, that's, that's entirely possible. <laughs> Uh, we'll get to the catching situation and how we'll handle it in a second. But we got a ton of emails, so I want to try to get to it because we didn't do a lot of emails on our last Rico. You could always email us, the RicoB at gmail.com. Uh, let me start off with Jimmy. Jimmy writes in the middle of game two of this series, in the bottom of the fourth inning, after Senga throws a rough count about 26, uh, 26 pitches in that inning, Marte, Vogelbach, and Canna come up in the fifth and... Uh, hold on, I lost my, I lost my, oh yeah. Marte, Vogelback, and Canna come up together and have the three weakest at-bats I've seen in recent memory and handed Stroman an eight-pitch inning, like I was talking about. Senga then has to come right back out for the bottom of the fifth and throw another 28 pitches. What's the team's philosophy with Senga? He needs extra rest between starts, but not between innings. Work a damn at-bat. <laughs> yeah, Lindor recently made a comment how he will actually take a pitch and use a timeout to try to give his pitcher more time in the dugout in case it's a quick inning. I'm not sure in that sequence that Marte, Vogelback, and Canna gave it much thought, and they should. 
Like it's, it's a really good point by Jimmy. It should be in the back of your mind. It's like when a guy gets two outs on two pitches, that third place hitter will usually take a pitch or two thinking, hey, let me give my pitcher an extra breath. In a world with a pitch clock where when you're Kodai Senga and you're throwing 28 pitches, you're doing it over a shorter period of time too. So you're not only throwing a lot of pitches, you're doing it bang, 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 bang. You're right. You would hope that guys in the lineup realize that. The Vogelback one cracked me up because Daniel Vogelback is good at one thing, drawing walks and having long at-bats. And in that sequence, he hit the second pitch to first base. So he couldn't even give you a long at-bat. Jimmy goes on to write, Buck rolled out a weak lineup for game one with Pham over McNeil and Sanchez over Alvarez. He also moved McGill up with short notice and gives him a catcher in Gary Sanchez, who he's never worked with before. I'm not contributing McGill's bad start to being moved up to accommodate Senga or having Sanchez behind the dish, but it couldn't have helped either. How much longer do they play with the rotation to give him extra rest? And Evan, we have to up our expectations for Alvarez playing two out of every three games. He's too big of a bat and needs to be in the lineup nearly every day. He's third in home runs and top five in RBIs on the team. He needs to actually be on his way to batting fifth, protecting Pete, not on the bench. So my reasoning for two out of every three games behind the plate is that guys get their ass kicked back there. And Alvarez has gotten his ass kicked back there. He has taken bats off the helmet. He's blocked balls in the dirt. It is a physically demanding position. So my retort on upping the ante on Alvarez is if you want to do it, DH him. And I think for the first time, this is becoming a real factor because the the main reason why, not that I've argued against DHing him, but why it's difficult to DH him is if you only have two catchers on a roster, you lose a lot of flexibility. The Mets are being set up to carry three catchers. They are because they've got four catchers where they've got no options to send them down. They could always get rid of Gary Sanchez, no harm, no foul. And they could do what we had talked about during the offseason after the Narvaez signing, and that's carrying Narvaez, Alvarez, and Nito. And the truth is, they love Omar Narvaez. I even like Omar Narvaez. He should not be ridiculed by us just because we love Alvarez and we deem him as competition. I think he's a productive bat. He's really good defensively. He looked decent for the short time we got to know him before he got hurt. The perfect anecdote to all, antidote to all of this is Alvarez gets factored in as a DH more. And you carry Nito and Narvaez and Alvarez. And Alvarez still catches a lot because he's growing as a catcher and he's really good defensively as a catcher. I give him a lot of props for that. But you do give yourself the flexibility to now use him more at DH. So I think that's the answer to the two out of three question because we can't just minimize the ass-whipping that catchers take behind the plate. I have a problem with this, though, now. Because if you do that, you give Buck too many options to be stupid. And I, I, this is the problem now. He's messing with the lineup too much. And, you know, not, not for nothing, he's not the only manager that's messing with lineups on a daily basis. I get that. But you're going to have situations where, well, I got to give Nito some uh, some playing time, so we'll have Nito behind the dish. We'll DH Narvaez, give Alvarez a day off. They're going to have times where they're going to give 
Alvarez the starting starting catching and give Navarez the DH. And that's the problem is that you he's going to use everybody because that's what he wants to do. He wants to keep the veterans. Uh, I don't know if it's happy, but active, and that can't happen. Well, perfect sequence into the email from Taylor Yardverb concerning that. Hey, Evan and Pete, love the pod. I'm not one of these lunatics that's calling for Buck's job, but it drives me crazy how he feels the need to work all the hitters in a game so frequently. It seems like he uses his entire bench in the starting lineup every two games. Yesterday, it was Escobar, Vientos, Pham, and Sanchez. Today, it's Vogelback and Canna. I much prefer the Terry Collins philosophy of the starting lineup being a meritocracy. Meritocracy. Sorry, it's late. The players that are performing best play. I feel a little wrong for complaining about a philosophy that helped them win 101 games last year, but with so much dead weight at the end of our roster combined with the kids that have tons of potential, I don't think it's a sound strategy. We've seen Vogelback play every day or as close to every day as a limited skill set would allow. We've seen Tommy Pham play a ton. Escobar has played second base every other day. None have produced on a consistent basis. I think it would be much more fruitful to give the kids a near everyday role to see if they can get going. If they don't get going, fine, but at least give it a chance. Not like you're going to hurt Vogelback's production by giving him a week or two on the bench. Do you think he'll ever settle on a near everyday lineup, or is it going to be musical chairs each series? So I do think it's important that you, maybe not as often as you'd like, but you got to use everybody on your team. If you let a guy sit for a week and a half, that's not good if you then need them because of injury. So I think there needs to be a balance. I'm not agreeing necessarily that Buck has the right balance, but there does need to be a balance where you get guys at bats. You, you can't bury a guy for three weeks. I, I don't think it's a sound strategy. That's number one. Number two, obviously, I agree that for the most part, Mark Vientos needs to play every day, that we need to see what this kid's got. And it's very similar to a discussion we had last year, which is you're trying to see what this team needs. Like, the Mets going to have to trade for a bat at the deadline or the bat's already here. Kind of the same thing with Ronnie Mauricio at AAA. Like, are the options already here? Or, hey, you know what? They're about short. They're going to have to make a deal at the deadline. And I agree, there is a lot of dead weight, a lot of dead weight. And there is a very difficult decision to make at some point, which is when are guys no longer deserving of your patience? Like, at what point do we say, yeah, I know what the back of the baseball card says, but this guy's not hitting enough and I got to make a move. And that's a tough call. That's a very, very tough call. Uh, Jess Avery says we should trade Tomas Nito and Daniel Vogel back to the Kansas city Royals for a Roldis Chapman. <laughs> hey, Chapman's look good at times. Chapman's look good at times. I think what he's thinking is how the hell do I get Nito and Vogel back off this roster? <laughs> That's what I think he's saying. Connor Sharnick writes Vogel back versus fam. That's his subject. I know everyone is tired of Vogelback and wants him gone, but people suggesting DFA, DFAing him is stupid to me. You mentioned it on the Rico before. I don't understand how he could possibly be a DFA candidate considering, excuse me, he only makes $1.5 million and his on-base OPS WRC plus are well above average versus righties. 
I think he's a big leaguer and could have a role on this team, even if it's just as a bench player or a pinch hitter. And by the way, I still agree with that. Like, I still think he can have a role on this team as a bat off the bench, just not the guy DHing most of the time. Uh, if they wanted to give, if they wanted to move him to give the kids more at bats, I'm fine with that too. But shouldn't they be able to get a very solid bullpen arm in return or a solid minor league arm? I'd assume they could flip him for somebody like Colin Holderman. It's <laughs> funny. For those who don't get it, that's who we traded for Danny Balderman. His contract and numbers have to make them a fit for a bunch of teams. Either way, to me, Tommy Pham is the DFA candidate and has to happen today. He has no value as a fourth outfielder who's a lousy fielder and has no business playing center field anymore. Obviously, he hasn't hit a lick either. I'd love for them to send Pham packing, call up Mauricio, and go with a bench of Eduardo Escobar, Mark Canna, Daniel Vogelback, and the kids playing as regularly as possible. I think Jeff flexibility to play the outfield makes it work, and if Beatty can play left field, it's even more doable. Appreciate the time. Love the Rico. I agree with him. I actually totally agree with him. If you're calling up Mauricio, or if there's a bat amongst the veterans who you say, I'm ready to move on from, and I can replace them, it would actually be Tommy Pham over Daniel Vogelback. That would be my thought. I do agree with you on that. Yeah, and that and, and not for nothing, but he's right, though. Like, you have technically five outfielders. If As long as Marte, Nimmo, and Khan are healthy, Beatty could play left, possibly. And McNeil's the fourth outfielder. Six yeah, I think if Mauricio ever gets the call, McNeil's the outfielder. Like, Jeff McNeil's just going to play a lot of outfield, and I'd even throw in uh, Eduardo Escobar, too who could at least go out there. Remember, he was doing a little bit of it in spring training. This is from a few days ago, but I wanted to bring it up. Joe DeSanto writes, why does Carl Ravitch hate the Mets? He's throwing subtle jabs at the Mets all night. This is from Sunday night. I was seriously considering muting the TV and listening to Howie on the radio, but I wanted to hear Ravitch get salty after the Mets won. I can't be alone on this. Pete has to agree with me. Signed, Joe. Joe, do you, uh, Pete, do you agree with Joe? That Carl Ravitch hates the New York Mets? It always feels that way. I, I don't know why, uh, but I, I'm not going to 100% agree with him because I actually like Carl Ravitch. I like what he does. But I, I feel like if you're the local team, you listen to him talk, you do get that 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 vibe. But I'm not I'm not sure if it's a real, real dig at us at all. But yes. <laughs> we we just hate the national broadcast. That's the world well, we live in. It sucks. It's boring. It's It's... It's just not good. It it, it really is because you, you again we're spoiled. We're spoiled. That's yeah. part of it. We're, we're spoiled. And they just don't watch the team the way we do. I think that's the number one issue. All right, couple of things on the catching situation. Gary Sanchez does not have to be on this team. All right now, when they called him up, I didn't have an issue with it. It's a backup catcher. Narvaez on the IL. Nito on the IL. No problem with it. You want to give him a chance over Michael Perez? I just didn't have a problem with it. If Nito is healthy, if Narvaez is healthy, I do lean towards the idea, at least for a short period of time, of carrying the three catchers. I think eventually you trade Tomas Nito because Narvaez is signed. Alvarez is clearly your future catcher. He's your current catcher. Forget future catcher. He's the freaking catcher. And backup catchers are not that difficult to find. So I think Nito would be able to net you something back. He's a very solid defensive player who doesn't make a lot of money. A part of why they signed him to that extension, apparently, was that it would make him more tradable. So my answer to all of this 
is I'm willing to play with the three catchers, Nito, Narvaez, Alvarez, mix in some Alvarez DH days. So Narvaez and Alvarez can both get a decent amount of at-bats, but Alvarez needs to be the priority. He needs to be the most of the time catcher. But how about this quote from Alvarez? Alvarez had a great PR run over the last four days. Besides his production, I mentioned earlier the Will Salmon article in The Athletic, which just painted this ridiculously awesome picture about how pitchers love him, how he's really stepped up as a veteran, how Jeremy Barnes, the hitting coach, loves him. He's got the greatest growth mindset he's ever seen. There was a great story about how he had the confidence uh, in that Washington game about a week and a half ago in the middle of a long at-bat David Robertson was dealing with that Alvarez went out to the mound to just give him a break, give him a joke, make him smile, squat behind the plate, and then have Robertson strike the batter out. He's 21 years old. Like, the fact that he's getting that kind of confidence in himself, I think is amazing. I mean, the things we've heard about Alvarez over the last month, forget about what we've seen, because what we've seen is awesome. He's grown as a hitter. He's not swinging and miss nearly as much. He's blocking balls in the dirt. He's pitch framing his ass off. So besides the obvious that we watch, to hear the compliments that are coming his way from pitchers and veterans is awesome. This guy could be the catcher for the next 15 years. That's incredibly exciting. The Mets have had a long history of really good catchers, but most of them have been acquired from elsewhere, like Mike Piazza, like Gary Carter. This could be our guy. But here's his quote on the four catchers. This is Francisco Alvarez, who's 21 years old. At the end of the day, the four of us in this situation are all on a team, and we want what's best for the team. Hopefully, Nito and Narvaez come back and get healthy. And if the manager decides that the best interest for the team is for them to play, I will take that in stride, and I will respect that decision for the team. And if their decision is for me to stay up here, I'll also respect that and give my 100% to help the team win. Our main focus is try to win a championship and not really care about everything else that's going on. Now, that's a mature comment. That's a guy who gets it. It's either that or the interpreter is really good at spinning words. (laughs) (laughs) I, I will calm everyone down with this. I'm not worried about this. Now, I may be worried about him not playing as much as some want. Obviously, there's going to be a disagreement about that. What is enough? He is a catcher. He's not going to play every, every, every day. But the idea he's going to end up back in AAA, barring some kind of massive slump, I just don't see happening. And I agree with you, and I, and I like that. But I have two worries, two. And one's a little far-fetched right now, but let me hear the, the first one is this. Why the hell were they talking so down about him last year? He's not ready. You know, we're not sure if he's mature enough. There's a lot of – I mean, he looks – Exactly. Like we said, he looks the part. So there's yeah. a little concern about that of like, what the hell were they protecting? What, what was, what was Epler thinking? So I'm a little, that rubs me wrong in the front office part. Also, it, it, on the up flip side, maybe they're buttering him up. Are they working to trade him? No, I don't think that these recent compliments are about trading him. I think it's the reality. I think that, you know, I think that, the Met organization, and by organization, I mean the guys that are at the major league level, the coaches, the pitchers, who don't have a say necessarily in him being sent down or not. That's a Billy Epler decision. 
But I think that's their way of saying we love this kid. We don't want him to be sent down. I mean, why else would you make comments like that? They know what's going on around them. So I don't think there's any motive to trade him. As far as the concern from last year to this year, there's two things. The number one, we don't trust this front office. This front office has not earned our trust. Why would they? It's not like they're the ones that drafted these guys or signed these guys. They're not. Like I've always said, Billy Epler inherited these prospects. He didn't develop them. Uh, so it could just be, yeah, they're wrong. They're idiots. And who could blame us for thinking that? We don't trust the front office. The other possibility, which is the likeliest possibility, is he's 21 years old. Last year, maybe he had a maturity issue. This year, he can drink a beer, and he doesn't. Like, that is absolutely on the table. But what's really, really encouraging is there are a lot of great athletes in, in, in every sport who don't work hard enough once they get to the show. They don't put that work in. And that's the difference between being Kobe Bryant and being Blake Griffin, right? Like, Blake Griffin was a fine player. Did he work hard enough early in his career? Probably not. Kobe Bryant was a killer, man. But we all know the stories. We know about the Mamba mentality. And I think that that's the same thing in baseball. You get to the major leagues, how hard are you willing to work? And that gets you to the next level. And the fact that at such a young age, as a highly rated prospect, and we're seeing the results. This is not just stories we're hearing about. We're watching. When you can watch the progress in front of your eyes, it's really, really awesome. And that's one of the positives, despite this two-game losing streak. <laughs> we have a guy in Francisco Alvarez. And he can cook. And he can cook. I read that, too. Yes. And he's quite <laughs> a cook. Now, look, they got to find a way to win the finale of this series. Getting swept in Chicago, where they've had major issues outside of the NLCS over the last decade, would really be it'd be a dark cloud over what they did on the homestand, let's be honest. So I think... And I've said there are certain regular season games that matter more than others. I definitely think Carlos Carrasco versus Jamison Tyone Thursday night's one of those games. It's a very, very important game. You can't get swept by Chicago going into Colorado. Very important game. Uh, Pete, are you going to do a Rico after this series? I am unavailable. I apologize. That's why we're doing it tonight or this morning. Will you give the people what they want? And that's a Rico. After the series against the Cubbies. So I've talked to a couple guys, and we are heading down to the Jersey Shore for the kickoff, the summer kickoff. Uh, but I believe we will be doing a podcast at the Jersey Shore on Thursday. That. That's what I'm talking about. So you got a couple of extra Ricos, and then we'll be back together after the series against the Colorado Rockies. Appreciate the emails. If we didn't read yours, my apologies. But you can send it on over to RicoB at gmail.com, the RicoB at gmail.com. Thank you for downloading and listening to Rico Bronia. We hope you enjoyed this episode of the Rico Bronia podcast. It's amazing, isn't it? Make sure you download it now to keep it on you at all times.